Good morning, everybody. It's good to have you with us today, whether you're on site or online. It's great to have you with us. Um, yeah, it is a it is a good day for a few reasons. It is a good day. Um, do you know that God is in touch and he cares about every little detail? Do you believe that? I'm not asking you to respond. If you want to, you can. But he really does care about every detail. Now, it doesn't mean that every detail that we make, we have to consult with God. That's not what I'm talking about. It doesn't mean God, ketchup or mustard. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying the things, when we, the scripture says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then in Matthew 6, it says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will, will be added. What the scriptures are teaching us is that when God is the focal point of our heart, when he's not a piece of our lives, but he's the center of our lives, when he's the absolute center of our lives and we worship him and we make him the number one, he's the master, he's a CEO of my heart. It means when things matter to us, they matter to God. That's what he's talking about. Things matter to us. They matter to God. Just a, I mean, silly little examples. And I, I wasn't even planning to share this, but I'm going to share it. Even though it's silly, you might go, well, it's just kind of silly. But, you know, um, I have a tendency to lose things. You, ever, you know what I'm talking about? Any losers? No? no? I don't mean you are a loser. I mean you have things to lose. I have a tendency to lose things, especially the smaller that they get. That's why I put my phone in the same place every night. That's where it goes. When I come home, I put my wallet in the same place. Generally speaking, I have a pair of earbuds that I, that I keep with me when I go everywhere, and I, I bring them with me. I do them when I'm, when I'm reading sometimes. When I'm prepping, I use them. When I cut the lawn, I use them. They have noise canceling, and I love them, and they're great, and I've had them for about two years. And I lost them a week ago, and... Um, I was upset because one, I'm too cheap to buy another set. Okay. So I have this like $30 pair that I'm using that I'm going, these just don't work. I don't like them. And they're okay for cutting grass, but not for anything else. Noise canceling doesn't work. Um, so this whole week I've been looking for them this whole week. I've been searching for them. And about two days ago, I just got fed up with it. And I, you know, when you look in the same place over and over and over again, and you're like, it's gotta be there. And it's not there the first time. It's not going to be there the third time. Um, I got up the other day and I was in the garage and I said, you know what, Lord, um, this means nothing to you. Um, it's just a dumb little set of earbuds and I'm going to lay this before you and I'm going to say, but you know that it means something to me. So I'm going to ask if you would help me find them. But if you don't, and I need to buy another set, I'm okay with that. And I prayed that for two days last night. I decided to change my pants before I went downstairs after taking a shower. You're thinking, I came to church to hear this? And I pulled out my bottom drawer and I pulled out a pair of shorts that I guess I wore a week ago. And as soon as I put the shorts on, I could feel them sitting in my pocket. And I went, they're there. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? You're like, no, not cool. Whatever. Hey, whatever. You don't have to have the faith. It's my story. All I'm saying, and I have so many stories to talk about regarding those things, If we don't put conditions on God and we're looking to have genuine personal relationship with him, real relationship, even sometimes the things we think are the smallest actually mean a lot to him because they mean something to us. Does that make sense? If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the book of Acts this morning? Acts chapter 2. All right. Besides being June 5th, does anyone here know what today is? What we celebrate as the Christian church. Does anyone know what today is? You can just say. 
Pentecost Sunday. Today we celebrate Pentecost Sunday, and we are going to talk about Pentecost Sunday. Okay, my message is called "The Power of Pentecost," um, but we are going to talk specifically about Pentecost and why Pentecost is significant. Now, if you have any connection with the Christian Church over any period of time, you have heard this phrase Pentecost before. And maybe you're not too familiar with it. Maybe you grew up in a fellowship that was more conservative or maybe a bit more fundamental, like I initially did. Um, And you've maybe heard about it, but it was kind of like the people down the road that kind of maybe spent more time celebrating it. Um, Or maybe you came from a very Pentecostal, charismatic type of background in the Christian church. And this is very common experience for you, that you're familiar with what this is and what it means. And maybe you have a bunch of understandings of what happens in Pentecost based on what you see in Scripture. But here's, here's the thing. Pentecost is absolutely significant. Next to the cross of Jesus Christ... And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Pentecost Sunday, I believe, is the third most significant event we see in all of Scripture. Without the cross, there is no forgiveness of sin, right? Without the resurrection, there is no confirmation of what Jesus did, and life comes through his resurrected life. And without the power of Pentecost, without Pentecost, there is no power living within us. And I'll explain that in a few minutes. There are three reasons why I think Pentecost is significant. But before I get to that, let me just address the elephant in the room because you might say, I don't even know what Pentecost means. Okay? Pentecost comes from a Greek word that means 50th. 5-0-T-H. 50th. Okay? Isn't that spiritual? Today we're celebrating 50th. And you know why that's encouraging to me? Because this year I'm being 50. So that's why it's a big... No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I am coming turning 50 this year, but that has nothing to do why it's important this year. 50th is what the word Pentecost actually means. It was the 50th day after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pentecost just means 50th. So why are we celebrating that? And what else was happening in the culture? We'll talk about that in a little bit. But there are three reasons I think we need to talk about Pentecost Sunday this morning, and they're simple. Three reasons are promise, presence, and power. Promise, presence, and power. I'm going to say it one more time. There are three things about Pentecost that are really important and why we think they are significant, why we think it's significant. It's because it represents promise, it represents presence, and it represents power. Now, what am I referring to? It represents promise. A promise that Jesus promised in the Gospels. That God was going to send his Holy Spirit when Jesus left the earth. It was a promise. Backtrack all the way to the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, there's a promise that God is going to bring his spirit and pour it out. In Joel chapter 2, there is a promise that God is going to pour his spirit out on all flesh. It represents the presence. Because in the Old Testament, Ezekiel... And in Joel, both of them didn't just speak about this spirit, but the spirit of God is part of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he was talking not just about a promise, but he was talking about the presence of God. And you can go all the way back to Genesis and see back in Genesis 1, the spirit of God hovered across the waters when he said, let us make man in our own image. Who was he talking about when he said us? He was talking about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who was there creating all things. 
In Exodus, when they walked through the Red Sea, and the scriptures say that the wind blew all night, it was the same word that's used in the Old Testament in Genesis 1 when it talks about the wind, the pneuma, the breath of God, if you will. That's the Greek word, the pneuma, the breath of God, that speaks about God's presence amongst his people. So it talks about the promise of God. Pentecost represents the promise of God, that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit actually is the presence of God. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is, or he is, I should say, the power of God in spirit. But then he was also the power of God. Because what you see, Old Testament and New Testament alike, and this is significant, Everywhere you see supernatural work, everywhere you see transforming power happening, it was the presence of God who was responsible for the supernatural. Everything that happened was the Old Testament, New Testament combined. You could say, well, didn't Jesus do miracles? Jesus, the Bible says, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was given an unlimited measure of the Spirit. So it wasn't just Jesus as the person. It was Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God represents power. So, this is why Pentecost is so cool. In the Old Testament, going all the way back to Exodus, the presence of God lived around the people. And if you go back to the book of Exodus, we won't go there this morning, what you would see is in the wilderness, there was a camp, and there were 12 tribes, and there was a tent, and the tent, the presence of God would descend, and he lived around the people that were there, but he was from a distance, That was the presence of God. Moses could dwell with him. Moses could interact with him. Joshua later interacted with him. But the people would keep a healthy distance from the presence of God. Fast forward to the New Testament, and then you see the presence of God walks among and lives among people. Because when Jesus came, the prophecy even said, you will be great with child. You will give birth to a child, Mary, and his name shall be called what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So he went from this distant presence that you would observe to now God in the flesh walking with mankind. Pretty powerful, right? But then, and we won't go here this morning in John 14 and John 15 and John 16, Jesus starts to talk about the good thing that's going to happen. He tells his disciples, hey, I'm getting ready to leave. And I mean, I can't say what I would definitely do if I was one of the disciples, but if I was walking around with the presence of God, God in the flesh, I would be pretty upset if he told me he was leaving. But then Jesus said, it's actually a good thing that I go. Because if I leave, I can ask the Father and he will send the paraclete, which is the counselor. And he will not just come and be with you, he will come and dwell in you. And that's what Pentecost was. Pentecost was the day, the event, the moment when God's spirit lived in each person. So why is there power in Pentecost? Because the power of Pentecost is God's presence living in every follower of Jesus Christ. That is what we are here to celebrate this morning and why we are so thankful. The power of Pentecost is God's presence. If we go back thousands of years, they saw his presence from a distance. If we go back 2,000 years, they walked among and with God. Jesus Christ in the flesh, the Son of God. But then when Jesus left and he ascended in Acts chapter 2, they received true power when the Spirit of God came and lived 
inside every follower of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful trajectory. And what's even more beautiful is that he's not done yet. Because there's another piece to that story. But this is Pentecost Sunday, so you got to wait till we talk about that later. Okay? Now, when I say the word power, I'm sure many different things come to mind. Power can mean one of many different things, right? There's power in this room right now because you can see me. You can hear me. And that's electrical power, right? We have electricity in this place, right? There is power in numbers because if one of you were singing during the worship service, it would be okay. But with everyone singing and worshiping together, it's powerful, isn't it? It stirs us. It moves. There's something about us coming together. There's that kind of power. There are all different types of power. I want to show you what scripture says the kind of power we have actually is available to us through the Holy Spirit. The word in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus uses when he says the word power is dunamis. Dunamis. And here's what it means. Dunamis means the possession of controlling influence, often understood as manifesting influence over reality in a supernatural manner. That's the sense of what the word means. The possession of controlling influence, often understood as manifesting influence over reality in a supernatural manner. It means the kind of power we're talking about is the kind of power that changes the present world in supernatural ways. We're not talking about electricity. We're talking about the kind of things that change the world we are in, the worldly world that we are in, in supernatural ways. That's the kind of power Jesus said that we would have. He told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would give him or give them power in two different places. He said it in Luke 24, 49, and he says it in Acts 1, 8. In Luke 24, 49, these are parallel passages. In Luke 24, 49, this is after the resurrection, when he meets with them, when he eats with them. Like, I love the end of Luke is so beautiful because they're still not really sure if this is actually Jesus or if this is some ghost or aberration. And you know what he says? He says, give me a piece of fish to eat. I love that. I'm like, you just died on the cross, rose from the grave, and now you're asking for some feet from fish. Like, that is so cool. And they're like, is this really him? He eats the fish. He talks with them. He walks with them. And this is what he says in Luke 24, 49. He says, I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Hear that? I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with what? Power. From on high, same word, dunamis. Dunamis, power, manifesting influence over reality in a supernatural manner. Then when you fast forward to Acts chapter 1, Luke and Acts were written by the exact same author, by by, by Luke. That's why it's called the book of Luke-Acts, basically. It's like volume 2. Luke follows up and begins the same conversation and dialoguing what happened when he says in Acts chapter 1-8, he tells them to go and to wait in Jerusalem. And look what he says in Acts 1-8. But you will receive, say it with me, power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He just gave them a mission that if you followed with us through the story of the series in Acts, he just gave them an impossible mission. 
In man's eyes, with man's abilities, he just gave them an impossible mission. But he said, you are going to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of God. And because of that power, again, what kind of power is this? This is power that manifests influence over reality in a supernatural manner. You are going to change the earthly world with supernatural means. You are going to change natural things with supernatural means. That's what he says is going to happen. And you're going to be my witnesses to it in your hometown, in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses to it in Judea, your city and your town around you. You're going to be witnesses to it in Judea, your state, Samaria, your country, and all the ends of the earth, the entire world. And that's what he's telling these handful of nobodies that grew up as local yokels. Pretty incredible, isn't it? Supernatural means to change natural circumstances. This is what we're talking about. So just so you get an idea of where else dunamis dunamis shows up, there's 119 occurrences of the word dunamis in the NIV 84 version. It's the same word used all throughout the New Testament 119 times, and many times it references what Jesus is talking about, or it specifically talks about how it can impact us. So I want to give you just four quick examples so you get an idea of where this same word shows up in four different areas of the New Testament. In Mark chapter 5, verse 30, there's a story of a woman who's bleeding. For 12 years, the scripture says, she was bleeding for 12 years with an internal bleeding issue that could not be solved by medical, medical help or medical treatment. So she goes to find Jesus. He's in a crowd. Everyone's around him. They're bumping into him and they're touching him. She says to herself, if I just go to him and grab his robe and just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And that's what she does. And look what happens in verse 30 of Mark 5. Once Jesus realized that power had gone out of him, he turned in the, around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Once Jesus realized that dunamis had gone out of him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see what we're, what we're doing here? Supernatural things, supernatural power and influence to change natural things. Jesus saw and recognized that power, which was what power came out of him? The Holy Spirit. The power was the spirit of God, the presence of God. I'm going to fast forward to Luke 4.36. There's a man in a synagogue. He's possessed by an evil spirit. Just the fact that there's a man in a religious place possessed by an evil spirit could be a whole other message that we're going to talk about some other time. But he's in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. He's possessed by an evil spirit. Jesus tells the guy, and he speaks to the demonic influence and says, get out. And the man is healed, and the demon has to leave. And the response is amazing. They say in verse 36, what is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. Same word. With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. So, so far we've seen power that heals, power that delivers, right? Same word that Jesus told his followers that they would receive when the Holy Spirit came and he did at Pentecost, 1 Corinthians 14, 11. I love 1 Corinthians because you've got people all through this book that are Christians, they're followers of Jesus, they're evidencing and demonstrating all the spiritual gifts that we talk about, the charismatic gifts, and they're a mess 
They are a mess. They're doing all kinds of dumb, sinful things. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, which if you really want a picture on spiritual gifts and how it works together, you have to read those three, ver- three chapters together. Chapter 12 is all about the kind of spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 that we read at weddings all the time, the love chapter, it's actually a rebuke. You know, but love is patient, love is kind. He's actually like, do you know love is patient? Like, and we read it in the weddings and we're like, love is patient, love is kind. It's a rebuke. And he's saying like, if you don't have love, all your gifts mean nothing. But 12 is the gifts, 13 is the need for love, and 14 is the order of how things should be done in a church that's fitting and orderly so that it's not a circus, but it actually lifts Jesus up, builds each other up so we can go build up the world. So in 14, okay, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's saying that there are different types of languages and all have different types of meanings, okay? He says that. There are known languages with known meaning. And then he says this in verse 11. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. The word that matches here is meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone else is saying, he's talking about the use of spiritual gifts and tongues and interpretation in the corporate setting, in the group setting. I'm a foreigner to the speaker. The speaker doesn't understand, and he's a foreigner to me. Meaning here is directly associated with wisdom and understanding. Spirit-led wisdom, spirit-led interpretation, spirit-led understanding. So now we have power that talks about healing, power that talks about deliverance, power that talks about wisdom and understanding. You with me? See how broad this is getting? Last verse. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. The writer of Hebrews is going back to the Old Testament, reminding us of a story that happened with Abraham and Sarah. And if you know the story, you know that God promised that a nation would be built from a man named Abram, who became Abraham. And he said, you will have a son. And from your son, an entire nation will be built. And your generations and your offspring will be more than the stars that you see in the sky in Genesis 15. And then Abram waits for five years and 10 years. And at year 10, he does something really stupid. And we'll talk about that somewhere else. Year 15, year 20, 25 years after the promise, God gives Abram, who becomes Abraham, a son. And he calls him Isaac. And his wife, Sarah, at that point, gives birth to a son at 90 years old. How many women could go, good Lord? (laughs) I mean, 90 years old? I mean, you're still around? God bless you? I mean, that is a beautiful time to love your grandchildren and then let them go home with their parents. And at 90 years old, at 90 years old, she gives birth. And she's well past the child-rearing ages. But look what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 11 about Sarah. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because the, he, she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Was enabled? Dunamis. Same word. God introduced a supernatural power into a natural circumstance to change the world around them. Wasn't that, isn't that cool? Those are just four examples. There's many, many, many examples. I told you there's 119 uses of it. So we're not going to go through any more, even though I know you want me to. So we're going to do that some other time. Why am I telling you all this? Because all of those instances point to the fact that the kind of power that God has called us to walk out and to experience is, is vast and broad. But it's important for us to understand what it needs to look like for us today and 
for us to understand what it looks like today, we need to go back to what it looked like in Acts chapter 2. So here's what it looked like when the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 together right now, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. There's always a skeptic amongst the bunch. They're praying, they're waiting. They're in Jerusalem. The Spirit comes on Pentecost, fills them. There's a sound of rushing wind, right? There are tongues of fire deposited on the heads of each one of them. And there are prophetic utterances, which according to the scripture, when you read it the way the scripture says, they all spoke known languages that they were not trained in declaring the praises of God prophetically so that all of the visitors of the town could understand and the message of Christ could go through the world. Isn't that cool? That's what was happening here. I don't want to misinterpret it. I don't want to turn into something else. When people say, oh, that they were crazy, they had too much wine, they were drunk. And Scripture doesn't say that. If you went into a room where people were speaking 15 different languages all at the same time and you were a cynic, you'd think they were drunk too. All I'm saying is whatever is here in the midst is that they were speaking. The presence of God, the spirit of God was coming forth and was being spread to all the people of all the area of Jerusalem in their own tongues and in their own languages. Wind, fire, people speaking in no languages they did not know. Sometimes people look at that and they say, I don't understand why all those things, three things happened. What was the purpose of that? The answer to that, I think, is very, very simple in Scripture. Because the Jewish people understood the presence of God through the Pentateuch, the Old Testament first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Exodus was the place that they went back to to reference the presence of God. And when you see the presence of God evidenced in the Old Testament, what you see are three different things. You see the wind that represents God. You see fire over and over and over that represents God. And when you talk about prophetic utterances, when the spirit of God came upon people, they declared the praises of God and they prophesied. You with me? So why would they have to do that? Because they didn't know what to expect. Jesus told them to go into Jerusalem and he could have been telling them just to wait for something they never heard of before. You're going to get the Holy Spirit and the counselor and they're going, great. 
How do we know? How do we know when we get the Holy Spirit? How do we know the Holy Spirit dwells in us? What does it look like? What does the experience look like? You know, I have a tendency to sell things on Facebook Marketplace because it's local and it's quick. And when you meet up with people, one of the first things we do when we meet up somewhere is we tell them what kind of car we're driving. You ever do that? Hey, I'm in a blue CRV. I'll meet you in that parking lot. Otherwise, I could sit in that parking lot all day and they'd be going, where is he? Where is he? I don't know what I'm looking for. His name is Paul and he's in his car and I know he's kind of bald, and, but, but I mean, I can't see him in the windows. I give some descriptors so that he knows. So when the person comes to me, they see the car. Then when I open the door, they recognize the face because my profile is on my Facebook profile. And then when I open up the trunk, they see the item and they know that, ah, there's a car that matches the description. There's the face of the person I've been talking to. There's the item I'm going to purchase. They know that they know that they know that they found the right thing. Can I tell you? It's the exact same thing we see in the New Testament. This is how they knew the presence of God inhabited them in that moment. The wind of God, the fire of God, the prophetic utterances. There was no disputing in their mind that they just received the power of God and the Spirit was walking, was walking or working in them. Make sense? So cool. I love that. That is so important. Now, there are so many benefits to Pentecost and why Pentecost Sunday is significant, but I think there are two that we can boil it down to. So today I want to talk about two that we see in this passage and that I think are the most important things we need to focus on for Pentecost because depending on what background you've come from in the Christian church, people tend to focus on different things. I'm going to talk about the two most significant things that we see to be to receive, and as we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or as scriptures like to say, the endowment of power, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you can use any of these words interchangeably, what were the results of that experience? I don't want to focus on the criteria, I want to focus on the results. Because what you see all through the New Testament is they never focused on the criteria, they always focused on the results. The criteria came. You could see different examples. Well, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and there were miracles. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and there was a a confession of sin and a heart of repentance. All of the results come first. The criteria take care of themselves when we focus on the benefits and the results. So what do I want to focus on today? Two things. The power of Pentecost. The power of Pentecost brings two things. The power of Pentecost brings outward outward multiplication and inward transformation. If you want to know the benefits of Pentecost and being filled with the Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, there are two things you see through the rest of the New Testament. You see outward multiplication, and you see inward transformation. First, I want to look at outward multiplication. What does it mean when I talk about outward multiplication? It means evangelism. It means the heart of followers of Christ being compelled to share the gospel with others around them and across the world. This part of the two parts is focused on doing. It's what we do as a result of being filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. Followers of Christ who are empowered through the baptism of the Holy Spirit are compelled to share their faith with other people. You can't argue that any other way in scripture. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you are walking in a fullness of the Holy Spirit and you continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be compelled to share what you have with people around you. And if you don't, something's wrong. That's not a judgment. I'm looking at scripture and I'm saying that's one of the gaps. 
What you see all through scripture is the doing is a big piece. It's the most common result the church associates with baptism in the Holy Spirit. With Pentecost and spirit baptism, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus gave the commission to the disciples. Back at the end of Matthew, he said that Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Stop for a second there. I bolded make disciples because that's the command. The command is not go. The wording is actually as you go, the command is make disciples. It is a moral, is a, a spiritual imperative that Jesus gives us to go and make disciples, to share. But we cannot do that without being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, surely I'm with you to the end. And then he said, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know what I love about that part is that he gives them this huge mission that they could never uh, do on their own. The Holy Spirit has to be directly involved. And then he says, and by the way, I'll be with you. Isn't that cool? I'm going to be with you. Well, Jesus went to heaven. How can be with him? Because the presence of God that raised Jesus from the dead, the scripture says, is the same presence that lives in his followers. He's with us everywhere. So what happened as a result of this and this spirit baptism that we see in Pentecost? Common men and women were compelled to speak the word of God and the message of salvation to everyone that would listen. If you look at people before and after their spirit baptism in Pentecost or in Acts chapter 2, Peter denied Jesus three times. John ran out of the garden naked. He did. Peter denied Jesus to a little girl and cursed the name of Christ during his arrest. And yet after Pentecost, we see in Acts chapter 2 that he preached to a crowd of people. And in one one message, 3,000 people got saved. I mean, that goes from like house church to mega church like that. Could you imagine Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, he wasn't one of the original 12. He was a deacon. And you know what I love it? Like, let's be clear when we talk about deacons. Deacons are not supposed to be less spiritual. When you look at the qualifications in Acts chapter 6, it says they need to be equally filled with the Holy Spirit, as the apostles and the elders would have been. Deacons have to be as well. Just because they focus on the practical helps, the means, the business, doesn't mean that they're not spirit-filled or they should be equally spirit-filled. All of those things have to be the same. But in Stephen's world, uh, as a deacon in Acts chapter 6, he preached the word of God and was stoned to death for it. And as he was dying, he looked up and he made a declaration that he saw God. And his heart was connected with Jesus regardless of what was happening to him in the natural because he was seeing the supernatural. How does that happen? Being empowered through the Spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit. In fact, every one of the apostles that you see in Scripture, they all went to different places and shared the gospel after Acts chapter 2. After the baptism of the Holy Spirit, after Pentecost, and they were empowered with the Holy Spirit, every one of them went somewhere and shared the gospel. Peter's responsibility was to be the rock that the church was built on. Some of you have heard that. Jesus told him he'd be the rock, and he stayed with the Jewish people. Paul came on the scene in Acts chapter 9, and his role was to go to the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people and preach the gospel and share the gospel. And he had four different missionary journeys that he actually made that happen. Andrew was the brother of Peter. And Andrew traveled throughout the entire Black Sea region, which is now the current, um, well, not current, but it was part of the old Soviet Union. He traveled all through there, and he died in Greece preaching the gospel. Thomas, some of you know the Apostle Thomas, right? 
What do we call him? Doubting Thomas. You know, he's going to smack every one of us on the other side of heaven when he meets us. It's like, I did all these things for Jesus and you still call me a doubter. You know, I mean, like, because it sticks with him. We remember, you know why? Because we identify with that. We identify with all the miracles that Jesus did. And Thomas still said, unless I see it, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus came to him, put his hands in his side and his hands in his hand. And John Thomas said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And he gave his life for Christ. Thomas traveled east of Syria. He went all the way to India before tradition says that he was thrust through with a spear and he died for the, for the sake of the gospel. Matthew, one more example. He traveled to Persia and Ethiopia before him being killed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are just some of the examples of the 12 and what happened. It's amazing that when the baptism came and they were filled, they were compelled to share the gospel. But it wasn't just the 12. It was the deacons. It was those filled with the Holy Spirit and Christian tradition. And if you go back and look at Christian history, you see many, many, many people, the Catholic Church calls them martyrs, who gave their lives for the gospel that weren't part of the original 12. Why? Because the power of the Spirit was dwelling in them and they were compelled to share the gospel. Sharing the gospel brings the desire. I'm sorry, being filled with the Holy Spirit brings the desire for outward multiplication. Today, our church is affiliated with the Assemblies of God. And whether you have familiarity with the Assemblies of God or not, what you need to know uh, is that the Assemblies of God is a fully Pentecostal denomination. We're actually called the collaborative fellowship, but that's another conversation as to the difference of what they really are. But we are affiliated with the Assemblies of God. This organization was founded in 1914, just a little over 100 years from now, from before, 100 years ago, in Hot Springs, Arkansas. There was a revival that broke out about 10 years before that called the Azusa Street outbreak in, um, in California. An outbreak doesn't mean it was a virus. It means that the Holy Spirit came in a way that was more like what we ever saw before in Acts chapter 2. It was more like what we saw there. 10 years later, the Assemblies of God was founded in Hot Springs with 300 people that showed up for that event. Today, in the United States, there's over 13,000 churches affiliated with the Assemblies of God and 3 million members. And around the world, there are more than 69 million members in the Assemblies of God. It is the largest Pentecostal fellowship or denomination across the entire globe. And it all happened within 100 years. How does that happen? Because when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and he fills us afresh with his spirit, outward multiplication is one of the things that he puts on our hearts. And you know what's so beautiful about all of this? It's really inherent in what Pentecost actually means. Because if you went to the Jewish people and you used the word Pentecost, they probably wouldn't have understood what you were talking about. But they would have understood the Feast of Weeks. Because the Feast of Weeks was the celebration that they all gathered to Jerusalem for. And you know what it was? A celebration for them to gather to begin to celebrate the beginning of the wheat harvest. So it was during the actual harvest celebration that the Holy Spirit came and filled the hearts of every believer. And as a result of that, a spiritual harvest began to take place. Really cool, right? Like you can't make this up. It's in scripture. God is really intentional with what he does. Outward multiplication. Number two, I want to talk about inward transformation. Inward Transformation. What am I referring to? Well, where outward multiplication talks about evangelism and focuses on doing, inward transformation talks about sanctification or focusing on being, being. 
This is the process of letting the old self die so that the new self can live. It's the process of God changing us from the inside to look more like his son. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us, he is not content to see us stay the way that we are. I have walked in a relationship with God in different degrees and levels for most of my junior high through adult life. And I can tell you one thing for certain. The person that I was 25 years ago, 30 years ago, is not the person that I am today. I have my share of junk just like everybody else does. I'll give you a list of it if you want, but then you'd probably post it on Facebook and i get in trouble. <laughs> I could tell you, though, when you begin to walk with God and you put your faith in Christ... You have a relationship with him and you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a transformation that begins to happen as you surrender yourself to him and die to yourself. You with me? What's required is open hands. What's required are open hearts. We cannot do this on our own. We need to be available and let the spirit of God transform us. What we see historically is that spirit baptism marked Christ's full reign within the heart of everyone who believed and it empowered every believer. Listen, every believer to die to themselves so that Christ could live through them. That's what Pentecost did for those men and those women. Pentecost didn't just give them a motivation to go share their gospel, the gospel. Pentecost also, through the Holy Spirit, transformed them inwardly so that they could die to themselves and walk in the power of God, to look less like themselves and more like Jesus. You know what the result was? Historically, more believers died to themselves. The more they felt called, the more, I'm sorry, the more believers died to themselves and submitted themselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, this is what the result was. They felt called to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They felt called to preach the gospel, to evangelize other people in every way, whether they were working full-time as a pastor, preacher, teacher, or just in their work environments. You see that historically, not just 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about 100 years ago when this fellowship was founded. You saw a transformation of people that were no longer content with just living their life, but their life became a compass, if you will, or an opportunity all around them to take the new found love they had in Christ and bring it to everyone around them. They began to teach the gospel, preach the gospel. They began to have a greater heart to pray. Pray. Do you know what the least attended meeting in any church historically has been? The prayer meeting. People will come to a church service. People come to an event. People come to free food. They'll come to a picnic. Hardly anybody comes to prayer meetings. And that's not a bridge thing. That is a church-wide thing that exists all over the place. doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but prayer is one of the most beautiful opportunities to break ourselves, to allow God to move. No surprise that it's one of the least attended. There wasn't just prayer, but there was worship where people's hearts were worshipful to worship God through singing voices to edify and to lift up God. There were other evidences too, like joy, rest, victorious living, Growth in grace and spiritual health. These were all byproducts of letting Christ transform them so that they could die to themselves and live for Christ. You guys still with me? 
This is so important for us to understand because the inward transformation was so powerful. How do I know so? We won't go through the two books, but if you look at the Apostle Paul in Colossians and Ephesians, and like I said, we won't go there this morning, Paul wrote to the church in Colossae and he wrote to the church in Ephesus, and through his entire writings of both of those books, he never prayed and emphasized manifestations. He never emphasized gifts. He never emphasized power to work miracles. He didn't do any of those things. He wasn't even praying for miraculous salvations. Do you know what he wrote to those two churches? It wasn't signs and wonders. What was his focus? Spiritual growth, maturity, deepening your relationship with God. Can I tell you why? Because when that becomes your priority, all the other things happen. If all he did was focus on the manifestations, if all he did was talk about the outward stuff, hearts wouldn't be changed. But when hearts begin to change, when we begin to open ourselves to God and we say, do whatever you want to do in us, as he begins to turn things in us and transform things in us, the results of that transformation are all the evidences of the spiritual gifts. So it's not like one is bad and one is good. It's a priority that he was focusing on. Paul, I'm not saying he wasn't interested in those things. Of course he was, but it was not the focus because he knew the foundational thing was inward transformation. So that we could be changed first. God could use us as a fresh vessel and then reach the world for Jesus Christ. In a book that was written a few decades ago by a woman named Edith Blumbauer, it was called Pentecost in My Soul. There's an excerpt that I want to read from you regarding this. As she looks historically of the Assemblies of God Fellowship going back the last hundred years, and this is what she writes about the early church during the early mission, during the early revival times. She says this, The pages of the apostolic faith which was a paper published by Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles. That was an actual document or a paper around 1906 and 1907. Illustrate the movement's early Christ-centeredness. Those seeking spirit baptism were not instructed to pray for tongues. Hear me on that. They were not instructed to pray for tongues, but rather to desire to know and experience Christ. They were also told not to leave the services and speak about tongues. They were not told to leave the service and talk about any unusual religious phenomena that happened in the church. Rather, they were to evangelize the world in preparation for Christ's return. I think we have perverted the priorities sometimes in the Pentecostal church. And we've made the focus on tongues. We've made the focus on the manifestations. We've made the focus on the spiritual gifts. And here's what I can tell you. God wants all of those things in his body. But not at the expense of inward transformation. We cannot function with the power without the character, guys. If we want to experience the miracles and the tongues and we want to experience the healings and we want to experience prophetic utterances, we need to submit our hearts and say, God, I am a vessel that you can trust with this. And if we're not willing to do that, ask all you want for the gifts. You ain't getting nothing. And if you do get something, it's like a fire hose without a fireman on full blast. You know what you're going to do? You might put a little fire out here and there, but you're going to soak everybody in the process. And when that hose goes without a fireman, people are going to get hurt. And you know what happens across the history of the Pentecostal church? I could be wrong because, again, my time in the Pentecostal church is not as familiar as some of you that have been in decades. But I have seen abuse and abuse and abuse and manipulation to go, this is what it's about. And it becomes a circus 
It's not that. The early church 100 years ago saw the need for the manifestations, but they said, hey, the manifestations are secondary. Trust God for the manifestations as you submit yourself to your heart. You know why this is so biblical? Because you can't go anywhere in the New Testament and see an instance where people were told to speak in tongues to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then they did it. No, what you saw were people that heard the message of Christ and salvation, and the result of their open heart was the manifestations. That's what you see. They didn't have to teach them step by step. They just said, become a follower of Christ. Walk with Jesus. He's a savior. He's a risen savior. And people went, and as they began to believe in Acts chapter 8 with Philip and Samaria, and as they began to believe with Cornelius in chapter 10, as the church in Ephesus began to believe in Acts chapter 19, they were spoken of the Holy Spirit. They believed, and the manifestations came as a result without instruction step by step. This is how we get it backwards sometimes. Again, are we saying these things are not necessary? Oh my goodness, of course they're necessary. But let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's not put the cart before the horse. Christ-centeredness is what Pentecost is really about. Dying to ourselves, let the Spirit of God who lives in us have control to transform us. Because if the Spirit of God lives in you, you know it's possible to let the Spirit of God live in you and for you not to live an overcomer's life. Do you know that? Just because the Spirit of God lives in you because you put your faith in Christ salvifically, God, Jesus, you're my Savior. That's great. I'm great. But my life is kind of the same, and I'm not convicted towards sin, and I don't preach the gospel, and I'm not giving my life, and I don't care about the spiritual gifts, and I don't want to pray. I mean, one, are you saved? But two, if you are saved, what rooms of your life have you locked off to disallow the Holy Spirit in, to uninvite him? That's what it comes down to. What I have found in my own life is every time the Holy Spirit has knocked on a door of my life, and said, hey, you, Mr. Spreadsheet guy, who likes details and numbers and organization and systems and, and logic, I have something I want to talk to you about. Nope. I read the word, and this is what it says. And he just sits there and goes, okay. <laughs> and then he comes and knocks again. Sometimes he does it through his words. Sometimes he does it through a message. Sometimes he does it through a devotional. Mr. Spreadsheet guy, who likes logic and all these different things, I would really love access to that area of your life. Could you give me some access to that tongue? Could you give me some access to your thoughts? Could you give me some access to fill in the blank? God, I don't know if I can do that. That is really uncomfortable for me. I know. But who's the master of your life, Paul? Because Jesus died and paid a price so that he could be called our master. That he could dwell in our lives. And as we release those areas of our lives that we've held on to, to control ourselves to the king of kings, the spirit then has permission to go in and renovate that area of our life. How do we do this? How do we do it? Well, let me ask you a question first before I answer that question. Because it is a good question. How? You could hear all this and you could say, yeah, that's great. What's the next step? I think scriptures show us. Let me ask you first, if you compare what experience you have and what we've experienced to what we read in scripture, how do your experiences compare? If you are a follower of Jesus this morning and your, your experiences are what they are, compare them to what we've read for the last 36 weeks through the book of Acts. 
Do they align? Are they similar? Has God spoken to you? Is he transforming you? Are you preaching the gospel to others? Has he given you different type of spiritual manifestations and gifts? Is there a confession and a repentance towards sin to walk in holiness? Is there a desire for prayer? Is there a desire to worship God? There's so many questions we could ask. Compare your experience to what happened in the New Testament. And my question to you first before I answer how is, do you want more of what God has for you? Because if you do, I think there's one answer. And it's a hard answer, but it's a simple word. And the word is Terry. The word is Terry. Now that's not a 2022 word. A lot of people would say, what? What does that mean? Terry means this. It means to abide or stay in one place. Abide or stay in one place. And that doesn't mean never leave your house. It doesn't mean you come to church on Sunday and tomorrow when I come back, you're still here. It doesn't mean that. It's a position of our hearts towards God. It's not a physical place, but it's a position of our hearts towards God to tarry, to abide, to stay in one place. To seek God, not a gift. To seek relationship with God, not a gift. Because I can promise you this. When you seek God, I can promise you this as someone who didn't grow up in this environment. If you seek God and you give him your ears, your eyes, your tongue, you're going to experience manifestations you never experienced before. When you give him your wallet and your bank account, you're going to see him use your wealth and your abilities and resources to bless and to build things you've never seen possible. When you give your skills and your abilities to God and you let him transform, you're going to see him use you in a way you never thought were possible. But the way we get there is through tarrying. Tarrying. One more quote I want to pull from that book, Pentecost in My Soul, from Edith Blumhofer. This is what she said regarding the early Assemblies of God fellowship during the revival movement in the early 1900s. She said, from the very beginning, there were manifestations of charismatic gifts, and this phase of the meetings attracted attention. But these were not the primary objectives of the movement. The appeal was to Christians who were already devoted followers of the Lord Jesus and who were hungry for deeper spiritual experiences. And so when the message was received, meetings for tarrying before God and seeking his face were conducted. Those meetings often produce seasons of heart searching and confession of weaknesses, shortcomings and sin. But the seeker went before God in humility and confession. The door was opened for marvelous manifestations of divine grace and power. See what happened here? All the manifestations were happening, but they weren't the primary focus. What was the primary focus? Waiting on God, listening for God, sitting before God, praying before God. That's what it was. If I can say it a different way, God showed up when man's hunger for God exceeded their hunger for everything else. That's when God shows up in our lives. When our hunger for God exceeds our hunger for stuff, for wealth, for video, for media, for everything you can put. I mean, I'm even going to go, I'm going to go as far as saying it. Sometimes it's even family pressures that people can have. Family is great. 
God's called us to do this and to support our family and to walk in relationship with our families. But you know, sometimes good intentions can result in bad results. People can stop people from doing things because of fear and they don't want to disappoint their family. But Jesus said he also came to divide families, not because he wants to break up the family unit, but because he wants our heart to be primarily focused to following Christ, to tearing before the Lord and being aware of what he can do in us and through us. Worship team is going to come here and we're going to close in just a few minutes. But I want to tell you, tearing is a theme you see all through Old Testament and New Testament. Just briefly, let me just tell you, Moses and Joshua in Exodus 33, they knew how to tarry before the Lord. Moses, scripture said, would speak to the Lord face to face as a Lord speaks, as a man speaks with another friend. Joshua, it says, would wait and sit in the tent of meeting because he would tarry before the Lord for relationship. It was a breaking of himself to be empowered by Christ or by, by God himself. Fast forward to King David in 1 Samuel 13, 14, when Saul was being replaced as king, God's word through the prophet Samuel was, I'm going to put someone in this place as king, and it will be a man after God's own heart. Because he wanted to tarry and wait before God. His heart was sensitive to the Lord. Prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, 31, that those who wait upon the Lord will what? Renew their strength. They will rise up with wings as eagles. That's not passive. It's a hunger to pursue God over ourselves. And Jesus in Luke 5, 16, the narrative says, he often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, communing with the Father. He tarried. There is no detour around this truth, church. Pentecost has been made available to you and to I. Pentecost has been available through the power and the empowerment of the Spirit is available to all of us. But I can tell you, we can say a prayer, we can trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, and the Spirit will indwell in us and will begin to regenerate us. But we don't have to walk in any power if we don't learn to tarry, if we don't learn to wait on God and be hungry for Him more than we are hungry for other things. David Wilkerson was the founder of Teen Challenge and Times Square Church, and he said this, when you strip it of everything else, Pentecost stands for power and life. That's what came into the church when the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. Power. Power to reach a world. But before we reach a world, he's given us power to be transformed internally. As we get ready to close, can I ask you as the team will sing this song about being in the presence of God, will you do some heart searching with me this morning? This is not the moment. I feel like we're standing at, I feel like we're standing at the beginning of a race. And I feel like we can be in our blocks and the gunman's ready to fire that starting pistol, a target pistol, and the race is getting ready to go. Do some heart searching with me this morning. Are you satisfied in your Christian walk with Jesus? Are you satisfied in your relationship with Christ? Or are there areas of your life that you say, I'm just very human, normal, worldly, and I need a breaking. I need a transformation. Can I tell you? Anything that doesn't represent Christ in this world that's in our lives can be changed through the power of God's Holy Spirit because he put his spirit in us with dunamis power, supernatural influence over natural things.
Are you satisfied with your walk with Jesus? Can I ask you this question? Do you tarry? Do you tarry? Where are your prayer closets? What are your devotionals like? Will you come to a Tuesday night prayer meeting? We've been doing this for like, it'll be two years this year, later on this year, right? Every single Tuesday night, we come, we pray, we worship, we seek God, we pray for each other, we pray for our church, we walk through our building. Maybe God's telling you to say you need to begin the process of tarrying with other believers. I can tell you there's been some pretty cool things that we've experienced during that prayer meeting. Is it a formula? No, but I can tell you what, some of the things I can attribute to the last six to 12 months in me are directly related to that experience. Do you tarry or is life too busy? Because if life is too busy, you're going to get what you're looking for and what you're working for. What are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? Because I can tell you, whatever you're hungry for in this world, you get. If you're hungry for wealth and power, you'll get it. If you're hungry for contentment and complacency, you'll get it. If you're hungry to hold on to everything that you think makes you you instead of talking to Jesus and let him touch you and transform you, you will get it. But if in your misunder, if you're, if, if in your questioning and your maybe openness say, I don't, I don't quite know what the answer is to this, but I'm open, Lord. Show me, teach me. And you begin filling yourself with the word and you begin surrounding yourself with people that know God's word, that can love you, not quote scripture at you, pointing at you, that can walk alongside you, that you can tarry before the Lord in prayer meetings. God begins to show you things. He begins to change you. He begins to break strongholds. That is the power of Pentecost. Because before Pentecost, that was not something available to the church. In fact, Pentecost is when the church started. Now we can commune with the Heavenly Father because His presence lives in all who believe in Christ. Isn't that amazing? And He sits in our hearts as a little flame, just like that flame on the screen. And He says to you and I, will you allow this flame to become a raging inferno in your heart? Terry, pray, surrender, walk in relationship with me and watch what I will do as you submit yourself to my presence.